Okay, so what we're going to do today, we're going to pick up where we left off last time. And this is as specific as I'm ever going to get. So we talked about divine revelation last time, scripture and tradition. And uh, today I'm just going to take it one step further. I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about the stuff that's in the New Testament. This is as specific as I'm ever going to get on any subject. And maybe it'll give you some kind of insight as to how specific you can get on all these subjects. So you look at your notes right here for just a second. And see the little chapter, little tiny paragraph there that says Mark? And a little tiny paragraph there that says Matthew? And on the next page, a little tiny paragraph says Luke and John? Mm-hmm. Would you believe that I studied full-time for an entire semester on each of those? I had an entire class for a semester, full-time, just on Mark and just on Ma- So there's tons you can go into here. Uh, just so much that you can know about that. But so I, this is as specific as, I, as I'm ever going to get. I wish I could get this specific about everything that we go over, but there isn't enough time. Okay? So, but I think it's important that you have some kind of an understanding of the background of what you hear in the New Testament, which to us is you know, the summit of the expression of our, of our church's revelation. So we're going to start with the Gospels. Okay? We're going to start with the Gospels. And the word gospel means good news. Evangelion. You can see the root word there for, for angel. Angel is a, a messenger. So the, the good message is the gospel. And ultimately, you know, what's the good news of the gospel? You know what the good news of the gospel ultimately is? Is that death is not the end of the story. When you, when you hear the, the scripture writers referring to the gospel, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their, in, in, in their hands. Okay? When you hear the scripture writers are talking about the gospel, they're talking about this message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's, here's really the basics, basis of the good news. And that is that death is not the end of the story. That all those who have died in Christ are going to rise in Christ. Okay? Gospel is a unique literary form written by believers for believers just as persecutions were beginning. So they weren't even thinking of writing these things down. The idea was, you know, to commit everything to writing for the good news for future generations while eyewitnesses to the actual events were still alive. Okay, now you think about this. Jesus died and rose in in what year? Do you all know what year it was? Anybody know how old Jesus was when he died? 33. 33, okay, so 33 AD. The first gospel which is right here in your notes, it's Mark, they believe. First gospel written 67 AD. So think about how much time just unfolded. How much time unfolds between 1933 and 1967? It's a big, big chunk of time. A lot can happen in those times. That's all the time in which the entire message of the gospel was purely oral, purely spoken, okay? Now the persecution set in. You know the Roman persecutions, Roman Emperor Nero, all this kind of thing. Start killing Christians for sport, I don't know if you've heard of this, some of these stories, but they'd, oh, they'd cover people in pitch and tar and set them on fire at night, lighting up the Roman Forum. Um, they would feed them to half-starved animals for f- sport. People would pay money to watch it. They started killing them. And well, as they began to kill them, they, they thought, well, you know, we better write this down. So the eyewitnesses, the people who knew what Jesus looked like, what he sounded like, what his, you know, what his eye color was, how he liked his fish cooked, all these things, his shoe size. They knew him. While they were still alive, they wrote this down. Okay, so we have our four Gospels. And you can say, why do you have four Gospels? Why do you have four Gospels? Well, the answer is, every Gospel gives us a perspective that's a little bit different from the other ones. 
almost like if you're going to look at a work of art, let's say you go to Florence and you look at Michelangelo's David and there it is, it's always in a place where you can walk around it. You can get it from all sides. Or you go, you know, you the Smithsonian Museum and you look at the Hope Diamond and it's always in a place where you can walk around it and catch it from all angles. In a similar sense, the message that our Lord gives is something that, that you know, you, you can't just get it from, from, from just one angle. You need it from different angles. And so there are these four different angles that are, that are given. Now, three of the Gospels are very, very similar, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very, very similar. And those are called synoptics. The reason why they're called synoptics, the, the word sin and optic literally meaning from the same point of view. They have very, very similar stories, but with a slightly different twist in each one, okay? So let's take a look at each one of the four Gospels. They say the oldest Gospel written was Mark. Now, you're going to find people to disagree on this. I don't want to get into the... You can get people giving entire, getting PhDs in Scripture over whether Matthew was written first or Mark was written first. Um, consensus being what it is, I'm going with the general consensus. Say Mark was written first. And uh, Mark was written in Rome by a man named John Mark. John Mark was a companion of Paul, a cousin of Barnabas, and he followed St. Peter to Rome. You know about how St. Peter went to Rome? Have you heard that before? Why is our church sending in Rome? Why not Jerusalem? Why is our church sending in Rome? Who did Jesus found the church on more than any other apostle? Peter. He said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. And he said to Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith won't fail. And after you have, have uh, proven your faithfulness, you can strengthen the faith of others. He didn't say that to Andrew or James or John. He only said it to Peter. Peter, where did Peter go? Peter went to Rome. That's why our church is founded in Rome. Um, go to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And just earlier this century, believe it or not, they found the tomb of St. Peter. And it's underneath the altar, the high altar of St. Peter's. Today you go there and... Anybody ever been to Rome? Okay, so you know. You go there and there it is. There's the tomb of Peter and you figure out they just... They just moved it there because it looks good for all the tourists. But they just discovered it this, just this past century and they didn't know where it was. And what they realized was that this ancient tomb, it has inscriptions, ancient graffiti, you know, hic est Petrus, this is Peter, all these other Christians all buried around them. They had, they had built right over top of the tomb of St. Peter an altar. And down through the centuries, they'd maintained the altar right over the top of St. Peter's. So if you could drop a plumb line from the top of the dome of St. Peter's, it would land right on the spot where Peter was buried. And they didn't know that until this century. So St. Peter, okay, buried, went to Rome, buried in, uh, buried in Rome, and Mark went with him. So Mark is his scribe. So if Mark is the scribe of St. Peter, when you hear the Gospel of Mark, it's like you're really hearing the gospel according to St. Peter. Does that make sense? Peter is the apostle, but people say Mark was an apostle. Mark wasn't an apostle. Mark was a dude who was a friend of Paul who followed Peter to Rome and wrote down what he said. That's who Mark was. Okay? Um, and what was going on in Rome in 67 AD? Well, you might have heard of a certain emperor, Nero, who was not a nice guy. Um, Nero was the first person to institute... Persecutions against Christians. You know, you heard the story. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. We blamed the fire on the Christians. 
And so they were in persecution. And so what you find with the Gospel of Mark is a gospel that emphasizes Jesus' humanity. For Christians who are dying and suffering, it emphasizes emotions, it emphasizes his suffering. It's really blunt, it's really direct. Okay? If we had a time of persecution, let's hope we never do, we'd be really blunt and really direct too. And we'd probably be really brief in our masses, wouldn't we? We'd get right to the point and say our mass and head on out. I'll tell you a little story. Um, I don't want to waste too much time here, but tomorrow we have a feast day of a priest. His name is Blessed Miguel Augustine Pro. He was a priest in Mexico in the 20s. And believe it or not, the Catholic Church was illegal in the 20s in Mexico. And I mean illegal to the point where in certain states like Tabasco and Mexico, you couldn't even gather for mass. It was illegal for you to even go. So what they'd do is they'd say they're having a dinner party. They'd gather around the dinner party and they'd secretly say the words to the Mass. Well, they tell you, when Mass is over, they all skedaddled for their own safety's sake. One night in your house, one night in your house, one night in your house. That's how they said Mass. So anyway, Mark is very, very blunt, very direct, and emphasizes Jesus' humanity, emotions, and suffering. And that's the reason why. So we've got some examples here in your notes. To compare with Matthew, sections from Mark, um, Jesus was moved with pity. In Matthew, there's no emotion there. In Mark, Jesus sternly charged them. In Matthew, it just says, Jesus said. Um, In Mark, Jesus is out of his mind. Not even mentioned in Matthew. Why are you afraid, Mark says. Why have you no faith? In Matthew, oh, you men of little faith. Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, and in Matthew, it just says, he answered them. See see the... the, uh, you see the, the, uh, the, 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 the emotions, the humanity? That's what you get with Matthew. Okay? I'm sorry, that's what you get with Mark. That's what you get with Mark. Okay? And here's a little something. This is just an addendum. Um, raise your hand if you know, if this sounds familiar to you. Uh, Jesus works a miracle. And as soon as he's done working a miracle, maybe he makes a blind man see, maybe he makes a deaf man hear, something like that. As soon as he's done working his miracle, he says, now don't tell anybody I did this. Raise your hand if that sounds familiar. Ever wondered why he does that? I'll tell you, okay? It's, it's called the messianic secret. And part of the reason why he does it is because until you see him die and rise from the dead, you're not going to understand who he is. That's why he does it. Because if you, if you thought that he worked miracles, and if he was the Messiah, you were going to think that he was a political messiah. He's here to set us free from the political power of the Romans. He's going to march on Rome with sword in hand and with the power of God behind him. He's going to conquer. So everybody rally behind Jesus because he's the messiah. And that wasn't who he was going to be. Okay? That was not who he was. You wouldn't understand who he was until after he suffered and died and rose. Okay? So that's the messianic secret. And it shows up in Mark. Okay, here's Matthew. Matthew talks about Jesus from a Hebrew perspective. Okay, so... He's the Messiah of the Jews. Who was the Gospel of Matthew written to then? The Jews. Okay? Matthew is the Gospel that's written to the Jews, and it says, hey, Jewish people, this is your Messiah. Okay? And they say it was written around 70 AD by someone named Matthew. Levi, the tax collector, a Jewish Christian, four Jewish Christians. Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for. Now, who knows what a genealogy is? Who does not know what a genealogy is? Genealogy is the great big listing of names. In the beginning of Matthew, there, there's a huge, long, boring list of names. And it starts with uh, 
It starts with Abraham. And it goes down through generation after generation of difficult, hard-to-pronounce, arcane Old Testament names. And it finally ends with Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And you've paragraph after paragraph of all these names, half of them, you, most of them you've never even heard before. Why do they have a great big list of names in Matthew? Because for the Jewish people, your ancestry was everything. It was his pedigree. It was proving that this was the Messiah of the Jews. If you're a Jew, you know what it takes to be considered a Jew? Who has to be, a, who, does, does your mother or your father have to be Jewish if you're going to be considered Jewish? Mom, okay? If dad's Jewish, they give you special blessing when you go to the synagogue, but you don't count as a Jew. Your mom has to be Jewish. Why is that? Because when mom's Jewish, we know where you came from, okay? <laughs> they're, they're, the dad, dads have, have sometimes a way of coming and going, but when mom's Jewish, we, we, know, that, we, we know that you're of Jewish ancestry. So he, Jesus, he proves his pedigree. Jesus shows that, uh, um, that, that God has been faithful to his promises all down through the ages, okay? And that's why all throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he keeps saying that the prophecies might be fulfilled, that the prophecies might be fulfilled. Um, and... Uh, uh, and he's the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises um, and, uh, and, and the fulfillment of everything that the, the Jewish people were longing for and hoping for. Okay? <clears throat> now, he's come for more than just the Jewish people. He's come for the Gentiles. And he makes that very clear. You know, one of the things that you find there is uh, you know, the story where there's no room at the inn. Everybody knows the story of the three wise men. Um, uh, and, 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 the, and there was no room at the inn, and, 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 and you know, later the, the Magi come, and they visit Jesus. And the idea is Jesus, he's, he's come as the fulfillment for all the Jewish promises, but he's extending his salvation to the Gentiles. Okay? Thank goodness that's you and me. Okay, so let's take a look at Luke now. Now Luke is like Matthew and Mark, okay, but it's written from a Gentile perspective. So do you, do you begin to see the pattern here? Matthew's to the Jews, Luke's to the Gentiles. Mark emphasizes Jesus' humanity. John's going to emphasize Jesus' divinity. Okay? So you can see how they balance out here. So Luke, written in the 80s by a companion of Paul, a guy whose name was Luke. So when you hear the Gospel of Luke, you're hearing the Gospel according to Paul. So in a sense, what you've got is the Gospel of Matthew, Peter, Paul, and John. Peter, Paul, John, and not Ringo. Okay? <laughs> But uh, Matthew, Peter, Paul, and John. Okay, so written from a Gentile, written from a Gentile perspective, he's the Messiah for the Jews. But he brought redemption to everybody. He brought redemption to everybody. And you'll see down through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see all these little explanations of Jewish things, like uh, he, he he was washing cups and jugs and kettles, as the Jews are known to do. And you can tell that that wasn't written for. That wasn't written for Jews. You can tell that was written for Gentiles. Here's an example. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Suppose I'm writing a story, and I say, um, yes, and, and on this fourth day of July, these people, they gathered together at night, and they watched multicolored pyrotechnic displays in the sky above them while eating hot dogs and sipping beer. You don't need me to tell you that. You know what the fourth of July is. Everybody, but, you know, maybe some other culture, I don't know. You know, I celebrated the fourth of July in Rwanda once, like, Lit off a bottle rocket. They didn't know what I was doing. Okay? Um, they don't know what it is. But, so you can tell that Luke was written to, to Gentiles. So he's explaining these, these, Jew, these, these Jewish things. Luke is the gospel reading this year in Mass. It's one of my favorite gospels. It's the gospel of the parables. 
the, the prodigal son is in, is, in, is in Luke, and the good Samaritan is in Luke. All the best, all your favorite parables are in Luke. You can thank Luke for Christmas. Okay? If it wasn't for Luke, you wouldn't know the story, the story of Christmas. It's just vaguely referenced in Matthew, but it's really, really written in Luke. There's a really interesting idea here about Luke. And they, they say that Luke probably had to have personally known the Blessed Virgin Mary. And when you think about the stories that are in Luke, it makes sense. So you got the story of the Annunciation of the Angel Gabriel to Mary. Angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Angel Gabriel disappears. Who's the only one who's credible to tell that story? Mary. Okay? So Luke keeps talking about all these things that only Mary would know, like Christmas, uh, you know, like, like the shepherds, like the Annunciation. And you begin to think, you know, maybe... Maybe Luke knew her. Okay? Maybe Luke knew her. Long story about that. I could tell you all about <clears throat> Paul living in Ephesus and the Blessed Virgin Mary living in Ephesus. Um, and, and perhaps there was that connection. Another really interesting thing about the Gospel of Luke, it's the only Gospel that has a sequel. Sequel to the Gospel of Luke is Acts of the Apostles. This is a really important... I think it's a really important point. See, Luke knows that it's going to be really hard for people to believe that the church picks up where Jesus leaves off. He knows that's going to be hard. And it's still hard for people. Very hard for people. They're like, okay, Jesus I get, the church I'm not so sure. This is why Luke writes a sequel. So you go, go to the Gospel of Luke, read it all the way to the end. Okay, Read it all the way to the end. And skip to the beginning of Acts of the Apostles. And it, sh- it reads as one continuous narrative. In fact, Acts of the Apostles begins by saying, in my first account, referencing the Gospel of Luke, in my first account, I said that everything that Jesus did up until his ascension. Now I'm going to tell you everything the church did, showing that what the church does picks up with what Jesus left off. That's why we have Acts of the Apostles. Yes? Yeah, that, you know, the, the, the thing that I tried to tie those two ideas together uh, very briefly, um, and that Paul, who wrote his letter to the Ephesians, must have known the Blessed Mother too, because we believe that she lived in Ephesus. Um, but Luke's the guy with, with 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 pen and paper. So I mean, it could it could have been it could have been that Mary knew Paul, or it could have been that Mary knew Luke. Fair speculation. When it comes to these scripture, when it comes to these scripture things, a lot of what we do is based on what's probable, and it's somebody had to get those stories down. So it wasn't Luke; it was Paul. One of the two. Yeah. Okay, but, uh, but yeah, the only, um, the only gospel that has a sequel. That's, that's one of the most important points of Luke. Okay, so let's take a look at John right here. John, John is the one that's totally different. Totally different. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they all tell very similar stories, often in the same order. But the gospel of John, very, very different, and emphasizes Jesus' divinity. It was the last gospel written. It was the only gospel that tells us that Jesus lived for three years. Did you know that Jesus lived for three years? Is that common knowledge? Or is that the kind of thing that like, only priests talk about? Okay, you know that. Jesus lived for three years. He began teaching at the age of 30. Why did he begin teaching at the age of 30? Because rabbis started teaching at the age of 30. That's why. How do we know that he lived for three years? Because the Gospel of John recounts three years of Passovers. And the third one is the one in which he died. So that's how we know that, that's how we know that he lived and taught for three years. Um, but the emphasis of the Gospel of John is that Jesus is God. Now, 
When, when Moses speaks to God in the burning bush, back in the book of Exodus, Moses asks God, what is your name? And what, what did God respond? I am the one who is. You remember my uh, class on, on, uh, on, on proofs for the existence of God? And I said, one of them is just existence itself. That God is not you know, one being among many. God is the very act of existence itself. The very act of being itself. So when Moses asks God, what's your name? Uh, God responds, my name is, I'm the one that is. Now go through the Gospel of John and you find Jesus saying that 54 times. I am. In fact, when he was, when he was uh, put on trial, you know, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah, the Blessed One, the Son of the Living God? And he responds, I am. Deliberately invoking the divine name. Okay? 54 times he says that. Um, uh, Jesus is the source of life and light, truth and glory. It's all very exalted. And he reveals who he is in healings, miracles, raising Lazarus from the dead. He always uses the word glory in the Gospel of John, the glory of God, so that God might be glorified. And that's kind of an important little thing to understand to help you decode the Gospel of John. Glory in the Gospel of John does not mean like somebody with like fame. Uh, glory doesn't mean like you're shining like a light bulb or something like that. Glory means that you're revealing who God is. Okay, so Jesus most glorifies God where? On the, on the cross. So you want to know the true glory of God, that is the true revelation of God. Look at Jesus who gave himself completely up to death with no benefit in it for him entirely for you. Nothing but humiliation and shame for him. That's where he most perfectly glorifies God. And that's what you get, that's what you get in the Gospel of John. That's what you get in the Gospel of John, okay? So let's, let's take a quick look at St. Paul now. Okay, so there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And let, let's make this real clear. Mark talks about Jesus' humanity. John talks about Jesus' divinity. Matthew is written to Jews. Luke is written to Gentiles. See how you get all four of those Gospels with a slightly different perspective? Okay. That's, that's what you get with the Gospels. Okay? So let's take a look at St. Paul. St. Paul is very difficult. He's much more difficult to understand than the Gospels. And that's why I gave you some pictures for St. Paul in the back of your notes. Some pictures, some timelines, all those things, just to help you a little bit. <clears throat> just to help you a little bit. But, but, uh, but Paul is very, very difficult. And the reason is because what Paul does is writes letters. Now, most of the New Testament is the letters of Paul. Most of the New Testament is the letters of Paul. But, but letters are difficult. Nothing's more personal, but nothing's more difficult either because we don't know the other side. So I'll say, uh, reading, from, reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, and you know, unless you know what was going on in Corinth, it's going to be 50% mystery what you hear. It's like hearing half of a phone conversation. Doesn't everybody hate that, right? Somebody yapping on their cell phone, and it's, just, it's annoying. Okay, it can be like that, but so it takes a little bit of work. Okay? But the way to understand Paul is this. Look at Paul as a spiritual writer. In fact, let me give you the key to understanding what I consider the, the key to understanding all of Paul. And he wrote it to the Galatians, and it's this line, which he said, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. That is the spirituality of St. Paul. In fact, that's the proper spirituality of any serious Christian. It's no longer I who live, 
It's Christ who lives in me. So that in your home, what would Jesus do? Well, he's put you there so that you'll do God's work in your home. In your place of work, what would Jesus do? Well, he's put you there so that you'll do what our Lord would do. And he doesn't want, he doesn't want uh, to smother you or take over. He wants to use your authentic personality, your gifts, your personality, your identity, everything about you that makes you unique. God wants to work through that. Cooperating with you. Again, he exalts his subordinates. That's the spirituality of St. Paul. Okay? It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me, and our challenge is to let him, to let, a, to let God live through us. So Paul's a spiritual writer. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He reveals what's ticking inside. Okay? He's a romantic, he's a risk taker. Nobody else in the Bible reveals as much about himself as Paul does. Okay? Uh, he might be the only spiritual, genuinely spiritual writer in the Bible. You've got evangelists, you've got historians, you've got prophets, you've got poets, you've got preachers, you've got teachers. But St. Paul's different. He asks this central question. How do I more effectively follow after Jesus Christ? Tell me, what do I need to do? That's why Paul's important. Okay? That's why Paul's important. So you're not going to get a story out of Paul. I'm going to tell you Paul's story to kind of help you put it in context here, but you're not going to get a story out of Paul. Um, you want to look at Paul as that spiritual writing and, and as somebody who in, enlightens your mind as to what you need to do so that Christ will live in you. Okay? Um, he's the one who expounds what it means to be a Christian. Let's take a quick, quick look here, a quick overview here of Paul's life. Uh, his original name is Saul, um, but after his conversion, he's called Paul. Uh, yes, for some reason, uh, Jews had two names, one Hebrew name, one Roman name. Paul was a tent maker by trade. He made a waterproof kind of cloth called uh, Cilicium, okay? uh, native to Cilicia. And he made tents and, and raincoats. By the way, just as an interesting little aside, uh, you know where denim came from? L- Levi's jeans. Levi Strauss went to, this has nothing to do with St. Paul, but <laughs> Levi Strauss went to California in the gold rush in the 1840s, 1850s, and he made tents for the, uh, for the people who work in the gold fields, um, you know, up in the hills, up, up north of Sacramento and by the border with what's now Nevada. And these people, these people um, realized that the material their tents were made of really made really great pants. They're really strong. So it began as tent making, as, as what began as a tent making material ended up being clothing. Uh, but Paul was a tent maker, okay? He made this really strong, Paul probably would have made jeans if he was alive today. Okay. Uh, what does Paul look like? No one's really sure, but our indications are not too good for Paul. Okay. Um, Second Corinthians says, in appearance, he was lowly among men. But my favorite comes from a document called the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Okay. And it says, Paul was a man short of stature, bald head, crooked legs, good state of health, eyebrows meeting, a nose somewhat crooked, full of friendliness. Okay, so you got to picture a short, bald, bow-legged, friendly guy with a unibrow. Right? That's, that's Paul. Okay? Um, now, Paul was a Pharisee. You know, you read the uh, New Testament and you hear the story about the Pharisees? And aren't the Pharisees all the bad guys, right? Okay, you want to expand your understanding of Pharisee just a little bit. A Pharisee wasn't necessarily a bad guy. A Pharisee was just somebody who followed the law of God strictly. It would surprise you to hear that Jesus was a Pharisee. It would surprise you to hear the Blessed Mother was a Pharisee. It would surprise you to hear that Joseph was a Pharisee. 
The only other option, if you didn't live in the desert, apart from everybody else down by the Dead Sea, was to be a Sadducee. And Sadducees were high class, elite, ruling class, uh, very wealthy, very tied to Rome, very tied to the powers that be. And as people often do when they get up there in the upper classes, they kind of dilute their faith down a little bit. Either you were one of those or you were a Pharisee. So Paul was a Pharisee. Not all Pharisees were bad, okay? That means they're a strict observer of the Jewish law. Studied under Rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the leading rabbis in all of Israel. Can I tell you a little bit about that? You might find this interesting. You know how Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee and there he sees Peter and his, his, his brother Andrew working their fishing nets. He says, come follow me, right? And there he sees James and John and he says, come follow me. And they leave their father and leave their fishing net and they come follow him. You know what's actually going on there? That's what happened when a rabbi selected his followers. And it was almost like getting an admission letter to college if it was a great rabbi. Okay? So the greatest rabbis of all had 70 followers. Gamaliel had 70 followers. You run to the mill, cheapo rabbis, they, they had about four followers. Jesus chose 12. Now from a guy who impressed the, the scholars of the law in Jerusalem when he was only 12 years old, you know, Jesus could have had anybody he wanted. He was really impressive. So when he said, come follow me, they were like, oh yeah, I'm going and following you. Because if you go back into the days of the, of the uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and you talk to like um, these historians who will tell you what it was like back then, they'll say that uh, you know, these children, 10 years old, had huge sections of the Old Testament memorized, committed to memory. It was like what they did for fun. And their hope was one day that they too would be called by a great rabbi. Because when a rabbi says, come follow me, what he's really saying is, you can be like me. So try to picture this, okay? You're, you're at, uh, um, I haven't said this before, have, do you, have I? I can't remember who I've told these stories to. So picture this, you're on, the, you're on, you're on the, the basketball court, you know, you're in West Philadelphia, whatever it is, and along comes this great big black stretch limo, and out of the limo comes, I don't know, Michael Jordan or uh, uh, LeBron James, and he sees these guys playing hoop, and he goes, hey guys, hop in, let me show you how it's really played. They go, oh man, I'm going to hop in, I'm gonna, I can be like him, right? When Jesus said, come follow me, it was like his way of saying, you can be like me. Now, when it, when a, when a young man wanted to join a really famous rabbi, there would come an hour of decision in which he would be either chosen or not chosen. That moment of decision was when he would either say, come follow me, or son, go ply your father's trade. <laughs> That's what they would say. Is, Do I get to follow you? Son, go ply your father's trade. Okay, That's the sign of rejection. Okay, So Paul, he, he started under Gamaliel. So as far as his education is concerned. Paul's like in Harvard. Okay, that's as good as it gets. Right? Very educated man. Spoke four languages. Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Latin. The turning point in Paul's life is his road to Damascus conversion. Paul is a zealous defender of Judaism. He thinks that Christianity is a fraud. Right? He's there at the death of St. Stephen, the first martyr. Stoned to death outside the walls of Jerusalem for witnessing to Christ. Paul's on his way to Damascus. Okay, Paul's on the road to Damascus where he has his major conversion. Why Damascus? It was a center of religious tolerance. So who, hate, who hung out in Damascus? Christians did because they needed the tolerance. Okay? They, needed the, they needed the tolerance. It was a haven for Christians. Paul's going there with a letter from the high priest requesting permission for Paul to round him up and bring him back to Jerusalem for trial. And there he gets knocked off his horse. Okay? You heard the story of the conversion of St. Paul. 
He actually didn't get knocked off a horse. That's not in the Bible. That's from a painting by Caravaggio. It's in a church in Rome called the Santa Maria del Popolo in Rome. A painting by Caravaggio. You go to the Acts of the Apostles, Paul never gets knocked off a horse. But it does say that he had a vision of Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? What does that tell us about what we believe about what the church is? We always say it's the body of Christ. And we are cells in his body. One of my favorite lines um, is from the one letter of St. James. When it talks about speaking unkindness to other people, St. James says, the reproaches you uttered against them fell on me. And Jesus says, whatever you did to the least my brethren, you did to me. Okay, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in a blast of light, you know, basically an incredibly grace, Paul's converted. Um, he's not one of the original 12. He's not one of the original 12 apostles, but we call Paul an apostle. Okay? We call Paul an apostle, but he wasn't one of the original 12. So what we have to do here is expand our understanding of what an apostle is. You think of an apostle as being Jesus called the 12 apostles, but it's a little bit broader than that. The apostle is a resurrection, someone who's a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the first criteria, and that's why there's no more apostles. You've got to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and if he personally asked by Jesus himself to be an apostle. So Jesus walks up to you and he, and he says, you're going to be my apostle and you're a witness to his resurrection. There are 12 apostles plus St. Paul. And if you go through the Acts of the Apostles, Barnabas is an apostle. Was he one of the 12? He was not. Okay. And they believe that there might have been a third James. So before you're done with the Acts of the Apostles, you've got 15 people who claimed, and there was, there was Matthias who, who took over from Judas, from, from Judas Iscariot who killed himself. You know these stories, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't know these stories, I'm sorry for going too fast, but I hope, I hope you know these stories. Okay? So um, a witness to Jesus Christ who was personally asked by Jesus. And there on the road to Damascus, he receives his vision. He learns directly from Jesus himself. Okay? All the 12 apostles welcome him as one of their own and as, one of, um, and, as, and, and as an equal to them. And what Paul does is he goes out and he teaches Jesus Christ. Now, why do we have all these letters? Thessalonians, Galatians, Corinthians. Here's why. Because Jews lived all around the Roman Empire. Okay? It was what was known as the diaspora. Have you heard the term diaspora before? The Jewish diaspora. They all used to originally, they all lived in Israel, but then they were conquered by the Romans, and they were conquered by the Greeks, and they were conquered, and they, and, and they got spread out. Okay? So they're all over the place. Where's Paul going He's going to all these Jewish communities. Okay, so Paul's going to, he's going to what's now Turkey, and he's going to Greece, and all these places. He's going to, he's going to these Jewish communities. Okay? And the very first thing he does when he shows up in these Jewish communities is he goes to the synagogue. That's what Paul does. And what do you think Paul says when he shows up in the synagogue? He says, hey, everybody, I got news for you. The great news is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he said when he showed up in the synagogue. I'm educated by Rabbi Gamaliel. That's my pedigree, okay? PhD, Harvard University. That's what he, that's what he shows up with. That's my, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Gamaliel right here. That's my, that's my rabbi. And I'm telling you, Jesus is the Messiah. How do people respond to that? Some people liked it. Lots of people didn't. Paul very often got run out of town on a rail, tarred and feathered. He was constantly in trouble for preaching, constantly in trouble for preaching. Um, there was an Anglican bishop this is just an aside now. 
an Anglican bishop, he said, when St. Paul got finished preaching, there were riots in the streets. When I get finished preaching, they serve me tea and crumpets. Okay? So Paul really, really raised the roof. Um, he didn't always get to finish his, his stories. He kept running around, and that's partly why he wrote these letters, was to finish what he started preaching when he was in these towns. Okay? When the Jews ran him out of the synagogue, who did he go to? The Gentiles. And the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ is because St. Paul was the first one to send the message outside of the Jewish community into the Gentile world. Okay? If you go back to the Old Testament and you see what the prophets said was going to happen when the Messiah came, here's what you'll find. <clears throat> you'll find that they said that when the Messiah comes, all the peoples of the world are going to recognize that the real God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what they're going to recognize. We say that's exactly what happened. The first person to make that known was St. Paul. Okay? And it happened after he first got rejected by the Jews. He'd go to the synagogue. Some people would like him. Lots of people wouldn't. He got run out of town. He'd go to the Gentiles. And that's what St. Paul did. So St. Paul's most biggest achievement for us is that he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the first one who's the apostle to the Gentiles. Also, Paul was the very first person ever to bring the gospel to Europe. Paul had a dream. Uh, he, was, he was in what was now Turkey. He had a dream that, 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 uh, um, that an angel told him to come on up to, uh, come up to Greece. And when he crossed over the, the GNC and landed in Greece, you can't overestimate how that changed history. Who knows what would have happened if he, instead of going to Europe, what, what, if he'd, what if he'd gone east? What if he'd gone to what's now Saudi Arabia? Well, he didn't. He went to Greece. So Paul was the first one ever to bring the, 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 the gospel to the Gentiles. also the first one to bring the gospel into, to, to Europe. He ends up writing 13 letters okay, across three trips, three missionary journeys. I've got maps of these for you in your notes. Okay? Um, he's finally beheaded by the emperor Nero after having been imprisoned in Rome. Okay? Um, so... Uh, Take a real quick look at the letters. And what you're going to be able to do here with your notes is you can, you can really quickly review these whenever you want to review them. Look at your maps to see where these places are. Okay? But uh, we'll go through a few of these letters real briefly. First of all, the Thessalonians. First and second Thessalonians. Okay? So if you look at your, uh, your second missionary journey map, okay, Thessalonica is in your upper left-hand corner. Real beautiful, real beautiful town. I've actually been there myself. It's right on the water. Um, and Paul goes to this place in northern Greece. And if you want to know what the Thessalonians are all about, consider this. The, the Thessalonians were incredibly concerned with two questions. Number one, what happens to us after we die? And number two, what happens at the end of the world? For some reason, whatever their culture was, whatever their myths were whatever their cultural beliefs were, they were fixated on these ideas of what happens to us after we die. And can I give you just a general overview? Before Jesus Christ comes, there are basically two ways that non-Christian cultures thought about life after death. Okay? The first way is rather grim. They thought of life after death as kind of like a, la a land of shadows where we kind of flitter about like ghosts. It wasn't seen as being happy. It wasn't seen as being fulfillment. Wasn't seen as being peace. It was seen as an existence, but an existence far removed from everything good, and everything you loved, and everything that, you know, kind of like how we fear death, right? 
we, we fear death, we think we're going to lose everything good. And Well, that pre-Christian understanding of death, that was one big pre-Christian understanding of death. Here's another big pre-Christian understanding of death. And that is kind of like a this-worldly paradise. That's not too hard to understand, is it? So you talk about the happy hunting grounds of the, of, of the, of, of the Native American tribes. Um, my favorite pre-Christian conception of heaven is Valhalla of the Vikings. Have I ever told you about this? Valhalla of the Vikings. In Valhalla, you wake up every morning and you spend the day slaying your enemies. And that night, uh, you, drink, you drink mead from the skulls of your vanquished foes. Go to sleep, wake up the next morning, and you slay your enemies again. <laughs> so if you're, a, if you're a war-loving Viking, that's, I guess that's heaven. Okay? But, but Paul, he's the first one that says, no, 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 no. Christ rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father. What happens to us after we die? Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, is not dawned upon the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Okay, so there's Thessalonians. So Paul goes up to Thessalonica and, uh, and he tells them about the end of the world and he tells them about life in Christ. And some of them think this means that Jesus is going to come again and bring us all up to heaven where eyes not seen and ears not heard. And, you know, he's going to come like next week or next month. And some people stop working. They stop doing their work. They maxed out their credit cards. They went to Dunkin' Donuts. And they figured, what the heck difference does it make, right? And that's what 2 Thessalonians is all about. He says, no, 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 you can't, you can't misunderstand. This is a mystery. I don't know when he's coming again. Um, but uh, live your life in Christ now. And by the way, get to work. That's 2 Thessalonians. Okay. Now, Corinthians, there's 1st and 2nd Corinthians, real, real briefly. You want to understand Corinthians, you have to understand Corinth. Corinth is a city in southern Greece. You can see it on your, uh, on your maps. Okay. Uh, once again, 2nd Missionary Journey map. Corinth is on your left-hand side, close to the bottom. Corinth is a city, it's on, a, uh, it's on an isthmus between the northern part of Greece, southern part of Greece. Corinth is a port town. In fact, it's a city of two ports. Now, if you look at that little section of Corinth there, and you're, and you're a sailor, you'll recognize that, uh, man, you could save a lot of time dragging your boat across that isthmus rather than sailing all the way around, especially if you're trying to get, say, from Phoenicia to Rome. That's what people did. So Corinth was a port town, two ports. So when sailors show up in ports, what do they do? Do they have a good reputation or a bad reputation? Bad reputation, okay? Bad reputation. In fact, when they show up in the port town, they start in the bar, and then they, they move on from there, right? But it starts in the bar. So you go, to, uh, you, go to, uh, you go to Corinth, and you'll find an archaeological excavation that shows 33 bars within the span of just a few city blocks. And you figure supply and demand, right? Corinth is famous for the temple to Aphrodite, a thousand priestesses, quote, quote, performing sacred prostitution. That's what was going on in Corinth. In fact... Um, if you really wanted to insult a lady in the ancient world, you'd call her a Corinthian girl. Core Corinthiae. It was like saying she was a, it was like saying she was a prostitute. Okay? Um, so Corinthians is basically a place of incredibly bad, low, debauched morality. Paul's coming down from northern Greece. Paul goes to Athens. He talks to all the scholars at Athens. And he says, scholars of Athens, let me tell you all about Jesus Christ. And they couldn't care less. And he gets run out of town and he goes to Corinth. Well, he's scared to death to be in Corinth because, you know, Corinth, it's like, it's like Mardi Gras on Bourbon Street. Okay? It's just not 
the kind of place where you're going to break out a, bust out a Bible and start preaching and expect to have a hearing. Okay? Paul busts out the gospel in Corinth, and he's so surprised people hear him. Maybe they're empty in all of their debauchery. That's probably the most likely case. They hear him. Okay? So when you read Corinthians, you're reading about doctrine and behavior. Okay? So in, in Corinthians, you're hearing about incest, unchastity, factions, divisions, lawsuits, problems at mass. What do we have when we have mass? We have consecrated bread and consecrated wine. If you're in a place that likes drinking, you can have a problem not with the bread, you can have a problem with the wine. That's what happened in ancient Corinth. You had to tell people, guys, lay off the sacred consecrated wine. That's not what it's all about, okay? Um, Talk to them about receiving the Eucharist, uh, spiritual gifts, the true meaning of the word love. You, you go to a wedding and you hear that passage read, um, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, love is not put on. Paul said that to the Corinthians. Why did he say that to the Corinthians? They knew a lot about lust, but they don't know anything about love. He was teaching them what was far more valuable. That's Corinthians, okay? That's Corinthians. It's a portrait of what Christian morality looks like. Um, okay, now we're running out of time here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of summarize these, these next ones real briefly. Galatians and Romans are very similar. Galatians and Romans are very similar. They're both about the answer to this question. What does it take for me to be just in God's sight? Now I'm going to throw this back to you. If I asked you this question, if you died on the way home tonight, driving home, let's hope it doesn't happen, but if you died on the way home tonight, driving home, and there you are at the pearly gates, and God says to you, why should I let you into heaven? Anybody know what the answer is? I've preached this before. Some of you guys know what the answer is. Some people say, please, 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 please. People say, I really, was, I really tried to be a good guy. I really tried most of the time. I really tried to be good. Now, the answer is, you should let me into heaven because Jesus Christ died for my sins. His merits, not mine, are my ticket. That's Why? Okay, so Galatians and Romans were all about this question of what makes me just in God's sight. Is it the keeping of the Old Testament law? If I avoid uh, ham and cheese sandwiches and I don't eat bacon cheeseburgers and I strictly observe the Sabbath and all, is that what makes me just in God's sight? And Paul says, no, that's not what makes you just in God's sight. Here's what makes you just in God's sight. Jesus Christ does and you prove it by living your faith in him. That's what makes you just in God's sight. And he, and he emphasizes you know, the example of Abraham from the Old Testament. And God says to Abraham at the age of 75, get up and I'll go to a, go to a land that I will show you. I'm not going to tell you where you're going or why you're going. I'm just going to say, trust me, leave everything behind at the age of 75 and go on a long trip. Abraham gets up and goes. And Paul says, now that's faith. You don't know where you're going. You don't know why you're going. You just know who's telling you to go. And you believe and you act. That faith, believing and acting, that's what makes you just in God's sight. Trusting. Make sense? Okay. Um, and I, I could go on and on about all these. Um, Ephesians and Colossians, also very, very similar letters. Okay? Very similar letters. They were fighting a problem uh, that existed. It was called Gnosticism. And you can see it on the last page of your notes there. Basically, Gnosticism was like a pre-Christian, non-Christian religion that said that if you had a secret, elite, special knowledge you would pass on from your current state into a higher state of being. Because your current state right now, a Gnostic would say to you, is you are a soul trapped in a body like a prison. 
And what you want to do is set your soul free. And if I can just give you the secret knowledge, you can set your soul free. That's what people believed. There was, and it was being passed off as Christianity. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not the case. In Gnosticism, there were lots of little gods and goddesses and different realms of being. And, and, and Paul says to Ephesians and the Colossians, he says, Jesus Christ is the head of all creation, of all things visible and invisible, in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. Christ is the Lord of all. He's not one spirit among many. He is the spirit. He is the expression of the, of the, of the eternal Father, and the, and the spirit of the living God uh, dwells in Christ and all those who, who trust him in, in his works. Okay. Um, and here's where it really has a, some real specific meaning. Without Christ, there's nothing but disunity and disharmony. Now think about this. Tell me if this isn't today's headlines. We're divided man from man, class from class, nation from nation, Gentile to Jew. And I always say this. If you don't look at your neighbor and see first and foremost, child of God, we're both children of the Heavenly Father, there's nothing left but you for division. That's the first thing we need to think. Not class, not race, not uh, uh, income level, whatever it is. We're both children of the Heavenly Father. And essentially that's what St. Paul says 2,000 years ago, right? And then he says, if it's not true in you, you've got a civil war in every human heart. You're torn between your desire for good and your desire for evil. We hate the sins we commit and we love the sins we commit at the same time. And he says, when you unite everything in yourself under the headship of Jesus Christ, that's where you find peace. Now, that's a real important spiritual message. That's Colossians and Ephesians. Okay? Now, these other ones, Philippians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, those are pretty much straight spiritual advice. Okay? Philippians is actually a thank you note. Paul really liked Philippi. And, and he was in prison and he wrote back to them. Uh, they'd sent him basically, they'd sent, they basically sent him a care package when he was in prison. That's basically what happened. Paul was in prison in Rome. People in Philippi found that he was in prison. They sent him a care package. To make a long story short, he wrote him a thank you note. And it's filled with great spiritual insights and wisdom. Philemon, um, uh, he went, again, he's, he's in prison. And they send a, a man named Onesimus to be a slave. Um, and, and he sends him back. He says, forget it. Treat him as a brother in Christ, not as a slave. That's Philemon. Okay? One and two Timothy. They both, uh, uh, Timothy's taken charge of the church in Ephesus. And he's writing him advice, basically telling him how to teach and preach and be a good example to people. Um, and in Titus, Titus has taken charge of the church in Crete. And like Timothy, Paul is writing and saying, here's how you're a good example to people and how you lead people. Okay? Now that's just a little basic background there. You can take a look at the missionary journeys and see where Paul went and timeline of things that Paul did and things that Paul wrote. Um, but I hope that helps you a little bit just to understand the Gospels in St. Paul. Okay?